It's Jonah chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Hear once again the word of our God. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the be- out of the fish's belly, and said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heardest my voice. For thou hast cast me into the deep, in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about, all thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. The waters compassed me about, even to the soul, the depth closed me round about, the weeds were wrapped about my head. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. And the Lord spake unto the finish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. Thus far the reading of God's word, and may he bless it to us this evening. I think we tend to forget that this book was first given and first read by a church. It was given to a church that was exceedingly blessed, surprisingly so. A church that knew prosperity. Her wealth was greatly increased at various and extraordinary extraordinary times. She was given all manner of temporal goods. Time and time again, the Lord gave her good. But not only that, this church that this book comes to, first of all, was also given the best of men. Really, men who stood head and shoulders above so many ministers of the gospel. This church was given men who were, first of all, God's men. Men who were sent by God and, without fear of men, preached faithfully. This church was given those things. Even this prophet and this book when the rest of the world was in darkness. And of course, friend, the church that I'm referring to here is the church of Old Covenant Israel. We're looking here at a church that was so wonderfully blessed, wonderfully blessed externally, wonderfully blessed ministerially by God. And it's to this church that this book comes. And what is this book? Well, as we said from the very beginning, this book is really a primer. A manual, if you like, on the grace of God. Because this church had lost it. This church, yet she professed to be the Lord's. She professed to know God, but she was still strangers to the truth of the gospel. Yet she had made a wonderful profession to an onlooking world, but this church still was without the Lord. Still a church enmeshed in idolatry. She needed to know what truly the grace of God was, what it was and what its character was. And friends, we come to this text, Jonah, the second chapter, we come to a primer, not so much about the external aspects of the grace of God, as we saw in the first chapter, we come to a manual, 
our repentance. The inward workings of that grace. You remember in the first chapter we had that internal glimpse at verse 16 of the mariners. Of course the Lord had delivered these men from impending temporal doom. But as you look at the 16th verse, these men were not just delivered from the storm. They were delivered from idolatry. Spiritually, their bondage was broken just as their peril had been broken from the sea. Well, as we come to the second chapter, we move from that inward working of grace that we saw in the mariners to now the inward workings of that grace in the prophet. Our focus is now returned to Jonah. And if you look at the second chapter, I want you to notice, friend, that it's a chapter that's very easily divided. As you look at the first two verses, you have the first display of the prophet that gives us something of an introduction of everything that's to follow. This, of course, the second chapter is really Jonah's prayer, as he is, of course, in the whale's belly in the sea. Those first two verses introduce to us the basic themes. Then what you have in verses 3 and 4 is the source of that which is the organizing theme of this chapter. So, well, what is the organizing theme? A friend, we're given to it, we're given it in the second verse. Mine affliction. From the second verse to the end, Jonah is going to give to us, as he goes before the throne of grace, views of the affliction that he currently faces. And in verses 3 and 4, he tells us first the source of that affliction. And then as you come to the next two, verses 5 and 6, the degree of it. The extremity of this affliction. Come down to verses 7. You have spirituality. And then verses 8 to 10 of course. You have the man's deliverance. From affliction. Our focus is just on verses 1 to 4 this evening. We're focusing of course on the introduction. But mostly we're focused primarily on what Jonah tells us. About the source of this affliction. And again I said that the second verse. That the organizing theme here really is. Jonah's affliction. This is the thing that he says is peculiarly his. Again, as you look at the second verse, he says here, I cried by reason of mine affliction. And it was Jonah's affliction. You look at the prophet, and how many ways was this affliction peculiarly his? It was his affliction in the sense that as he's in the whale's belly, he's experiencing something that no one else in the history of Scripture has. Of course, in the claustrophobia that he might have experienced, in the darkness, in the coldness, and the wet, Well, friend, no one else shared precisely what Jonah did. His experience here is unique. But it was also his uniquely because it was not the mariner's experience. They, of course, were delivered from the storm. They were still holding on to their ship as well as their lives. Not so Jonah. But friend, as you look at this text, you can't miss that Jonah means that this is affliction in an even more profound way. More existential way. This is his affliction because it is his sin that invited it. This is Jonah's affliction because it is his iniquity that called it forth. This is his affliction that we read of in the second chapter. But then as you look through the verses to come, especially the third verse, friend, you notice that not only is this affliction Jonah's, but Jonah points to us the source of it all. Again, the third verse he tells us here, For thou hast cast me into the deep. In the midst of the seas and the floods compassed me about. All thy billows and thy waves passed over me. But striking in the fourth verse, he says here, I am cast out of thy sight. Jonah is entirely passive. It is God alone in these verses 3 and 4 that is active. 
God alone that is working. It is God's activity that Jonah focuses on in these verses. And friend, we can't miss then that the prophet is emphasizing the fact that all of the affliction that he's currently reviewing, all of the difficulties he's currently facing, he says all of these things are traceable back to Jehovah. All of these things bear the stamp of the divine. That's what Jonah tells us. He begins here. We can't miss that. But at the same time, friend, we can't miss either. That as this is still the second chapter with the entirety of the book, a manual on the grace of God. The second chapter shows us also the constituent elements of repentance. As we said before, this is an example of how that grace works, not externally, but how it works within the soul. And what we find in verses 3 and 4, friends, that this work of grace that produces real repentance, well, friend, it takes God as both the source of the man's affliction or chastisement and deliverance. True repentance takes God as the source of chastisement and deliverance. And that's our theme for this evening. I want us to consider this, first of all, by considering the chastiser as he comes to us in this text. Then, to consider his cause. And lastly, to consider the consolation that the man who is chastised here lays hold of. And so, first of all, the chastiser. As we said before, friend, in the third verse especially, but really implied throughout, is the idea that it is God who Jonah sees behind all that he now faces. It is God who has sent up the storm. And of course, in the third, in, in, the, in the fourth verse, rather, of the first chapter, the storm is sent out by the Lord. In verse 17, it is God who prepared a great fish who cast him out. It is God who has done all of these things. But you know what's striking, friend? As you look at this text, note how, how he describes himself. He describes himself as a man who is in the deep, but it's the Lord's billows. It is the Lord's waves that he sees here. It's striking as well in the fourth chapter that he says, I am cast out of thy sight. You see, friend, it's striking because it shows us here that the man is not looking to the mariners. He's not saying that the mariners are the ones who have caused this affliction. He's not looking to the fish. And he's not attributing either of these things to chance. Everything he says is traceable back to Jehovah. Everything. And what you can't miss either, friend, is that in this text, because of everything that's gone before in chapter 1 and how this chapter concludes, everything tells us in this text that it is because of Jonah's sin that the Lord has visited these things upon him. But friend, what this teaches us here is that conscience in this case, is working very, very specifically. What it's doing here is it's holding before Jonah the reality that affliction is chastening for sin. In Jonah's case, he can only see the hand of God, the hand of God visiting him for his transgression. And beloved, as we look at this, not just as Jonah's case, but as an exemplar for repentance, we can't miss this also too is required of us. Conscience must see affliction as chastening for sin in such a case. I want you to notice, friend, that this is something that's required by the word of God. The prophet Amos puts it, I think, so very powerfully. He says, the Lord's voice crieth unto the city, and the man of wisdom shall see his name. And then this, hear ye the rod, and who hath appointed it? Hear ye the rod, and who hath appointed it? The prophet cries. 
In other words, friend, what you have here is the prophet saying your chastisement is preaching to you. Your affliction is crying out to you. Hear the rod. It's not just a rod that is felt. It's one that is supposed to be discerned. It's supposed to be heard. And so, friend, whenever the people of God in, in, of old failed to do so, here's what the prophet says. In vain, says the Lord, have I smitten your children. They received no correction. The prophet cries out to God, Thou hast stricken them, but they have not grieved. Thou hast consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. But then returning back to the prophet Amos, you can't miss this, can you? Over and over again, this very theme, that Israel has failed to hear the rod, comes to the fore and extenuates Israel's guilt. Note what the prophet says. The Lord here says, Through him I have smitten you with blasphemy mildew. But he have refused to receive, sorry, when your gardens and your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive trees increased, the palmer worm devoured them. And then this, yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. He goes on, I have sent among you the pestilence after the manner of Egypt. Your young men have I slain with the sword, and have taken away your horses, and I have made the stink of your camps to come up to your nostrils. Yet have ye not returned to me, saith the Lord. I have overthrown some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were as a firebrand plucked out of the burning. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. You see what the Lord is saying here. I have sent you these afflictions as manifest tokens of my chastisement. Manifest tokens of my calls of repentance to you. And yet you have not heard. You have not received the correction. You see, friend, what you have in this text then is the idea that that those who are under the chastisement of God have a solemn obligation to recognize that it is the Lord who has sent them. Those who are under chastisement for sin have an obligation to trace all of these things back to the Lord. And this is precisely what Jonah does. He looks at the rod. He feels the rod. But friend, he traces with his eyes the rod back to the hand that holds it. As you look at this text, friend, you can't help but miss the idea that this is something that the godly are engaged in all throughout the scriptures. Take Daniel, for example. Friend, note what he says. He doesn't merely say that Israel has sinned. Note what he says. He says, the Lord watched upon the evil and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works which he doeth. Daniel is in in that moment confessing his sin. But in the confession of his sin, he immediately turns back to show that God had afflicted them. It was God who had done it. It was his ways and it was his bills that had been sent. And then friend, take Jeremiah. As Jeremiah presents to us a case of a man who's truly repenting, note what he says. Ephraim was bemoaning himself thus. Thou hast chastised me and I was chastised. As a bullock accustomed to the yoke. Turn thou me, and I shall be turned, for thou art the Lord my God. Nobody for him is saying there. He's saying here, I was, thou hast chastised me, and I was chastised. Even as he goes before God, he brings before the Lord the reality that the Lord had afflicted him. He had felt, and he had heard the chastening rod. And friend, Jonah is no different here. As he goes before God, friend, he models for the godly what is required. If the Lord's chastening hand is laid upon the godly, it is requisite that you and I bring that before our God. Recognize the hand who has sent it. And friend, I, don't, I, I think this is rather controversial today. 
But for some reason, uh, that's inexplicable to me. Friend, the reality is the scriptures show us that our God is a God who chastens. In fact, the theology of chastening we get most from the New Testament, not from the Old. We get it from Hebrews 12. And yet, beloved, how rare is it for Christians to trace back their afflictions to God? How rare is it for us ourselves even to wonder, is this the chastening hand of God? No, we, of course we grant that not all chastening, not all affliction is sent by God on account of particular sins. But do we even ask the question these days? Uh, friend, do we even ask, do we even really believe that God's engaged in this work? Jonah certainly does. The people of God of old certainly did. And so, friend, it's required for those who would repent to ask the question, Am I under the rod? Are these the Lord's billows and His waves that are being poured upon me? You see, beloved, it is simply the question. Can we ask the question? Can we ask if the Lord is doing this? Or, friend, does pride dismiss the question outright? Do we just dismiss dismiss the question outright? No, I'm not all that bad. I've done nothing really to warrant the chastening hand of God. So why even bother with the question? You see, friend, that's requisite for those who repent. It's required for us to even ask the question, is the hand of God upon me chastening? And allow me to say this just as an aside. Friend, there is no opportunity for fasting and for humiliation unless we are asking this question habitually. There's no way for us to be humbled for our sins and the afflictions the Lord may send unless this is becoming part and parcel of who we are. Are we at least even willing to entertain the question? Is the Lord visiting me and urging me to repentance through these providences? My friend, if that's the chastiser, Jonah finds that it's God himself. That brings us to the cause. And of course, friend, as we look at this text, we can't leave Jonah one entirely. In order to really understand what Jonah 2 is about, we do need to go back to the ship. And allow me to take you there just for a moment. Uh, Friend, you hear, you hear the crashing waves, the howling wind. You see the lightning and and you see the ship tempest-tossed. And then you see Jonah. He stands there on the ship deck. And friend, as we read Jonah 1, it's entirely right for us to see that the man is fainting. But why? Why is he brought to a point where where it seems like he's entirely lost himself, becoming undone? Well, friend, there's a real simple, there's really a simple answer to that. What did he discern in the waves and in the wind? Well, friend, he discerned just this. He discerned that he that formeth the mountains and createth the wind, and declareth unto man what is his thought, that maketh the morning darkness and treadeth upon the high place of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. And it was he who was visiting Jonah in that moment. Friend, he traced all of these things back to a God whom he had offended. A God whom he had spurned. Oh, but friend, can you just imagine for a moment that that scene where Jonah stands among the mariners. The waves crying out that God is pursuing him. Can you imagine the prophet just for a moment as he hears the howling wind and he knows that it's God who is bringing these things for his sake upon the ship. That it's because of his sin that these things are aroused and that the sea is angry. 
And then can you imagine that moment as he stands and the lot is cast? And then it falls on him. You see the scriptures say this. He says the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. The prophet had been singled out by Jehovah without any intermediary, really. Can you imagine the man just for a moment? Exposed not only to the mariners, but exposed really before the entire world as the object of God's anger. They have sown the world, they've sown the wind, says the preacher. They that have done so shall reap the whirlwind. Quite literally, Jonah was. You see, friend, in this, Jonah discerns the the hand of God pursuing him. But what's striking as you look at Jonah chapter 2, he says here in the fourth verse, I am cast out of thy sight. But he leaves it at that. I am cast out of thy sight. He does not raise this as a complaint to God. Now, friend, imagine just for a moment that scene once again. And then the scene that follows him is cast into the breakers and he's he's taken by the fish. He doesn't once complain. In fact, the fact that he doesn't complain screams loudly that he really is vindicating divine justice. He doesn't say that the Lord has dealt with him unrighteously. He simply acknowledges the fact and leaves it there. You see, friend, the reality is here, even though Jonah is under great affliction, everything before on the ship and everything now in his own conscience says that the Lord does right. And this too leads us to another aspect of repentance. Conscience in true repentance vindicates divine justice. I want you to notice just a few prayers from the Old Testament that illustrate this. Take Daniel again. O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto us confusion of face as it is this day. Note what Daniel protects. First of all, it is the righteousness of God. That's his first concern. Take Ezra 9 as well. After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great trespass, we see that our God has punished us less than our iniquities deserve. O Lord God of Israel, thou art righteous. Friend, how does that contrast with Cain? How does the case of Jonah 2 and the cases I've just read to you contrast with a man who cries out, My punishment is greater than I can bear. How does it contrast with a Saul who weeps because of his affliction? Or an Ahab who weeps because of the threat? Friend, in all of these cases, you have men who weep over the consequences of sin. Are more concerned to get out from under the consequences than they are to vindicate the righteousness of God. And to say that these things have fallen upon them righteously. You see, friend, even the psalmist here models what you have in Jonah 2. Righteous art thou, O Lord, when I plead with thee. Yet let me talk of thy judgments. He begins with the righteousness of God before he descends to any conversation about providence. The psalmist goes on, I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right and that thou in faithfulness hast afflicted me. He begins with the righteousness of the Lord's doings. You see, friend, in true repentance, that's what you have. You have men who, by by the grace of God, are more concerned to vindicate the righteousness of God than they are to make excuses for their own sin. 
Jonah says, I am cast out of thy sight, and he makes no argument with the Lord. He raises no complaint against God. You see, friend, that is the character of true repentance. It is more concerned to vindicate God than self. More concerned to clear the judgment of God than to excuse sin. And that brings us then finally, friend, to our third point. What is that consolation that you have in this text? I want you to look at the fourth verse with me just once more. He says here, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. Yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. My friend, as you look at this text, you can't miss the idea that this is part of a series of moments where where the prophet is experiencing the affliction. He brings the affliction up actually three different times. And each time he answers with some, some reflection on hope. He, he has some sense that this is not always going to be the way that it is. His affliction, in other words, will have an end date. In this case, in our text this evening, verse 4 tells us that the hope that he has is that he will look again toward the holy temple. Well, what does he mean by that? I think it's helpful, friend, if you remember Solomon's prayer of dedication just for a moment. Solomon prays there, Hearken therefore unto the supplications of thy servant, he prays to God, and of thy people Israel, when they shall make toward this place. Hear thou from thy dwelling place, even from heaven, and when thou hearest, forgive. You see what Solomon is saying. He says, when the people of God turn to this place of worship, by the way, where the altar is, where the labor is, When your people fix their mind and their hearts upon this place that sets forward the forgiveness of our God through atonement, then, O God, hear and forgive. You see, friend, the temple was a place of confession. Even Luke 18 tells us as much when the publican and and the Pharisee go before God and confess their sin. But why? Why? Friend, as I said to you before, months ago now, the temple was a brick and mortar picture of the gospel. It was in stone and in metal a picture of the way in which redemption would be brought to hell-deserving sinners. And as those who had faith in the old covenant looked at the temple, they were supposed to discern that the Lamb of God would take away sin, that a fountain for uncleanness had been opened, and a way of entrance to the holy place had been returned through Christ. And so what does Jonah do in the fourth chapter? He says, I will look again toward thy temple. That temple that typifies for him the redemption that is to be found in the Son of God. Friends, just briefly, we can't miss this. As we're still learning, really, the essence of true repentance. We can't miss the fact that it begins by saying that if I'm afflicted, it is God who has done so for sin. And if God has afflicted me, He has afflicted me in justice. And it's God's righteousness that I'm most concerned to vindicate. But friend, it concludes in the fourth verse with a very real turn to the gospel. And this too is a constituent element of repentance. True repentance, friend, always and must take hold of Christ. Unless, else, friend, it is not true. Not genuine repentance. Friend, we read from Hebrews chapter 12 as we close. And Hebrews chapter 12 sets before us a contrast between Sinai and Sion. And friend, you remember how the apostle describes that for us. Even Moses who talked face to face with God as with a friend. He says, I exceedingly fear and quake. 
But then what does the Apostle do? He turns us to Simon. And he turns us to a God who has made access to himself through the blood of sprinkling, through Jesus Christ. You see the contrast there, friend. There is such a thing as a legal kind of repentance. Where men are always going back to Sinai and, and, they're, and they're always confessing their, their, their wickedness. But they won't yet take hold of Christ. Friend, they're still at Sinai. That legal repentance that only dwells on sin. That won't actually take hold of Christ for remission is not true repentance. True repentance looks like verse 4 of Jonah 2. Where the man looks to the gospel. Typified and preached. Looks to it exercising faith upon the Christ who is offered there. You see, friend, if I can illustrate this just briefly. The person who says, I'm, I'm repenting. And all they do is they focus on the guiltiness of their sin. They focus on the wickedness of whatever they've done. And they don't flee to Christ through it. They're like a man who has been offered a pardon by a king. And that this pardon has been secured by trading out the king's son. And the man decides he will refuse to take the pardon because he doesn't want to become debtors to the free grace of the king. Friend, that man is rightly unpardoned. No, beloved, the only way that true repentance takes hold of the soul is by taking hold of Christ. Calvin, I think, rightly put it this way. That as we're thinking about faith, we can't divorce the idea from repentance. It ought to be out of question, Calvin writes, that repentance doth not only immediately follow faith, but also spring out of it. As for them that think that repentance doth rather go before faith than flow or spring forth of it as a fruit out of the tree, they never knew the force thereof to think so. A man cannot earnestly apply himself to repentance unless he know himself to be of God. But no man is truly persuaded that he is of God, but he that hath first received his grace. No man shall ever reverently fear God, but he that trusteth that God is merciful to him. No man will willingly prepare himself to the keeping of the law, but he that is persuaded that his service is in Christ. Please God. Friend, this is... Perhaps a simple point, but it's one that so many miss. And I'm speaking about those who are within the pale of the visible church. You see, what you have in this text in Jonah 2 is a very clear picture that if you are to repent, it must be evangelical. It must be fixed upon Christ. You must lay hold of Christ. Yes, you need to grieve sin. You and I are called to grieve the wickedness that we've done. But friend, understand that's not repentance itself. Repentance does not occur until the soul takes hold of Christ for justification and for cleansing. And here in the fourth verse of Jonah 2, you have the beginnings of a manual repentance. Evangelical repentance. Repentance that fixes itself upon Christ. Repentance that Israel of old Fail to understand a repentance that you and I are required to exercise and by grace grow. And may the Lord by his grace cause us then to repent truly. And may we be a people who by faith 
lay hold of Christ and find that he communicates such grace, grants such repentance. Amen.